0: Welcome to episode 118 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers. That means we love looking at the nighttime sky and this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. How was your week, Shane?
1: It was good. I was busy with work, um, which left me a little tired in the evenings, but I think my kind of my craziness at work is behind me, Uh, but I did get a little observing in, um, I was able to test out a new mount and a new eyepiece, um, so that was okay. Um, how was your week?
0: Yeah, well, so I'm kind of, you know, I get I get vacation days, sort of quote unquote vacation days, which I use to do um, a variety of volunteer activities. So I teach an astronomy class, so and and I'm doing some other volunteer work for the uh, Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. So I, I'm using uh, some of these days for that. So I was quote unquote off Friday. Um and have been off for a few Fridays in a row now. And and because of that, you know, strangely enough, they don't seem to change my workload at the office. So I still have to get, you know, the the 40 hours of work done in in a week, even if I'm taking a Friday off. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's rough. That's the way that's the way it goes. That that's okay though. I'm I'm making some good progress. And I think you saw I sent I, I think I sent the show notes early this week. And so allows me the, the opportunity spend an hour on on showing it on friday afternoon as well good yeah, yeah so perfect. tell us tell us about this was the is it the is it called the caster mount
1: yeah so it's a burla back mount the the model is the caster um and they made two of them so like there's the original one and then there's the caster two and uh i have the castor two i'm not i'm not actually clear on the differences between the two um I know that there is some people online like on Cloudy Nights that complained about the Castor um having like some stiction issues and and just not a lot of generally favorable reviews but that that seems to be from the first model um there's less reviews from the second edition of it um but the ones that I did read seemed pretty favorable um and what I wanted was a a small Lightweight mount that was a T mount so that you could mount two telescopes on it, one on either side. Yep. Um, And I wanted it to uh, basically be my solar observing mount. Like I would leave my hydrogen alpha telescope, my little Lunt, and and it's tiny, right? It's a 35 millimeter aperture, uh, F10. So, you know, 350 millimeter focal length. It's not very big. Um, And then my little 60 millimeter or 61 millimeter William Optic uh, Apple with the uh, Lunt Herschel wedge. Uh, in there for the white light observing um so anyway this uh this castor uh presented itself to me i I put out a want ad and and somebody responded and uh it's basically brand new like it's an outstanding condition and it works really really well i'm really impressed with it so far i haven't used it extensively but it uh yeah it worked well like Balancing both telescopes is absolutely essential like some some of these alt as mounts you don't need to balance perfectly uh, right. because you just you know increase the friction on the yeah. uh, uh, on the axis and then you're good yeah. um, this one you, like there's you, you can adjust the tension and uh, you know that's certainly helpful, but this one definitely requires you to take a little extra time to balance uh, at the start and then You know, if you're changing eyepieces, try to use eyepieces around the same weight, but anyway, works great. It was fun. You know, I, I was looking at, uh, the sun and hydrogen alpha taking in the prominences and the various, uh, you know, surface details, but then there was, um, two, was there three sunspots? I can't remember now, but that's where the white light filter or the, that Lunt-Herschel wedge really, uh, outpaces the hydrogen alpha so that you know going over and checking out the sunspots um was pretty was pretty cool i really enjoyed that and um you know this little mount with both telescopes um on a fairly lightweight tripod just lives by the back door so you know if it's clear outside i can just grab it you know and eyepieces are in the telescopes like it's really just ready to go outside and observe and i love yeah. the convenience
0: of that kind of setup yeah hey what's the uh What's the weight carrying capacity of the cast? Um, I believe
1: it's eight kilograms. Jeez. So what is that? It's like 17 pounds or something. Yeah, but I think, I think that's combined. Like um, some uh, of these T-mounts will say like eight kilograms and that means per side. Um, but this one, it, it, it's not for big telescopes. The previous owner bought it for um, usage with 120 millimeter Skywatcher ED, the same one that I have. Yeah, and that's just way too much telescope for that little mount. Oh yeah, I think your hundred millimeter, uh, your tack, I think it would work pretty good because it's light. Um, I I think I think this mount would suffice. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. I'm I'm kind of curious about this mount too for potential uh, dark sky observing. You know, having that little borg, uh, the borg fifty millimeter on one side of it for the ultra wide fields. Yeah. Um, and then something of a little more aperture on the other side. So I don't know. Yeah. It, it's as far as like a T-mount goes for two telescopes. I don't know if you can find a, a lighter, more compact mount than this one. So, yeah.
0: It's pretty yeah. good. Well, you, you, you gotta come over once things settle down for you and, uh, come out in my quote unquote backyard. Cause, uh, I found a pretty good spot about 10 minutes away from here. I think I was telling you. So. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds exciting. Yeah. So you get an eyepiece as well.
1: Yeah, I mentioned this, I think, last week when we recorded uh, that I had just won an auction for a Takahashi uh, Abbey Ortho, uh, the 32mm. Um, I had used uh, the 9 millimeter and the 125 millimeter, and they were both fine eyepieces, but I didn't feel like they gave me any advantage over my other orthoscopics that I have. Um, but a 32 millimeter Ortho is a bit of a rare bird you know there's not a lot of those that are made um by the various orthos sets that have uh, come and gone um and i i i'm kind of craving like these uh wider field uh simple eyepieces for dark sky observing just to to let as much light through as possible um but have a wide enough field to showcase some of the you know bigger nebula and clusters that are out there Mm. um so this this abbey ortho appealed to me um, you know, right out of the box, uh, it, it's just the, the kind of the quality, you know, it just feels right in your hand and, and, uh, the comfort of looking through it. Like the eye relief is just perfect for me with eyeglasses, like no issues with blackouts, uh, easy to see the field stop. Um, it was quite nice that way. Um, it gives me a field of view about almost the same as my 24 millimeter panoptic. optic, um, uh, the ortho is about a third of a degree smaller, roughly. Uh, I don't even think it's quite a third. Um, uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, and it weighs, so the, uh, the 24 millimeter panoptic weighs like 240 grams, I think, something right around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ortho weighs 100 grams less, so it's way lighter and provides almost the same field view. Uh, the only issue, so I was using this thing last night, actually looking at, uh, the moon and Mars, uh, in their, you know, fairly close proximity, which was pretty mm-hmm. awesome. Uh, but then I just was looking at some star fields, uh, to see how I like this, uh, eyepiece. And my only complaint right now is about, oh, gee. So I was using this in my, my tax 76, which is F 7.5. And the edges were just a touch soft, like mm-hmm. not bad. Like they weren't you know, complete seagulls or anything like that. But the stars that I would say probably about the outer 10 to 15% weren't quite as tight, you know, as the ones on axis, which is disappointing, you know, because it's a 45 degree field of view. It's not a fast telescope. Um, I was hoping for pinpoint stars all the way to the edge. Um, so a little, a little sad about that on axis. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and I also had my 40 millimeter Pentex SMC Kellner with me last night too, just to, again, try to compare, you know, what these fields look like. And, uh, one thing I'll say is that that Pentex Kellner blew away the ortho for field sharpness right to the edge. Um, oh, is that was so? Substantial difference. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Hmm. So what? is it, I don't know. Is it a, Go ahead. it's T is it a TAO 32 or is it a Tau? Uh, so it's, uh, so
1: TAC Abbey Ortho, uh, the abbreviation is TAO uh, yeah. that a lot of people use on cloudy nights.
0: So. Yeah. Cause you know, like Taoism is sort of being in balance of harmony and nature, right? Yes. yes, yes. <laughs> Confucius say,
1: um, so anyway, I'm going to uh, keep messing around with this eyepiece and see how much I like it or don't like it. Um. I don't know. I think I'll end up keeping it for a little while at least. Um, Hmm. What I really want to do is test it out under a dark sky. It doesn't have as much. Well, I think that's where I'm hoping to see it shine anyway. We'll we'll see.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. And you had some, uh, you split a double last night as well. Sounds like.
1: Yeah. Well, I was, so the star field that I chose was just right or like right in Lyra centered around Vega and there's a number of double stars around there. So there's a, a Zeta Lirai. Um, That was a pretty easy split, no issue there. I saw the double-double, um, although I didn't put enough power on there to split both sets of doubles. Mm. Um, and then there's some doubles kind of uh, above Vega, which uh, I should have looked those up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a fun night. Like Surprisingly, seeing was pretty good last night. Uh, yeah. I felt the transparency was a little bit you know, garbage. <laughs> yeah, that was but, terrible. Uh, but the seeing was was pretty steady. It just I was kind of fighting off these waves of real light, high altitude clouds that um, just made it frustrating. So I ended up packing up a little early in the backyard.
0: Yeah, yeah. I never bothered going out. It was just uh, not not good enough for what I'm what I'm trying to do. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. I had a look at the the moon and Mars. Um, together in the same field. I think they were just like two degrees apart or something. It was pretty cool. Yeah. They were super close. Um, uh,
1: The moon, I don't know what, how old was that moon? A couple of days, maybe something like that.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, Yeah. Like five days, four days, something like that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a pretty young moon and, and Mars was right there, but really, yeah, I wasn't, I didn't put a ton of power on it. Like I think I ended up going to about, oh, I don't know maybe maybe sixty times. Yeah. And it still really looks mostly like an orange star at this point. Maybe a little bit of a disc was starting to develop, but it yeah. certainly it's it's so small compared to what it was last oh, yeah. year during yeah.
0: opposition. Yeah, that that's okay. what I said I, I was just using binoculars 7X and it just looked like a star right beside it. But it was it was neat. It's neat to uh you know to see the moon and, and a planet like that. And then uh I think it was was it? Th- I think it was Thursday night. I think it was Thursday night or something when the moon and Mercury were beside each other, and yeah, I went out yeah. and uh, had, a view, had a view, of those uh, as well, um, which is always neat. I had wanted to set the telescope up, but like our our clouds in the in the day have been very light, and then in the afternoon we get like these big clouds to build in. So we're in a bit of a drought here. For the people know we haven't seen much rain. We had a fifteen minute rain shower last monday or something like that and then i think we had a had a hour of rain three or four weeks before that but that's the only rain we've had in a couple in like well since the snow and uh, anyway we're getting these clouds and then the clouds are hanging around like last night was supposed to be really good and i was all set to go out everything's you know ready to go and could hardly even see the moon by the time i would have been going out so Mm -hmm. yeah
1: well and and thursday night i also saw mercury uh beside the moon or kind Mm of i wouldn't say beside it was close yeah um but you you had sent out a text to say hey go check out mercury so i did yeah and i i easily saw the moon but i didn't see mercury until a couple of clouds passed and (laughs) and then you know some more clouds came yeah. And uh, so that was just naked eye observing it. It wasn't really worth me taking out a telescope. I i hate dodging clouds. It just gets frustrating.
0: Yeah. I mean, honestly, that's uh that's all all we get back home. You're playing with the sucker holes too much of the time. But uh but here, yeah, you get used to those those clear skies. Like we we can get these remarkably clear skies. But but I don't know. I, I don't know if these are just this is just part of the drope conditions or what, but it's it's kind of getting pretty frustrating. Um Cause it's almost like the sky's trying to build up enough cloud to rain. And we did get like some pitter patter yesterday for like five minutes, literally. And you could smell it. It was crazy how much it smelled like rain. And then, uh, but it just, just rained enough just to dampen things and, and bring out some of the green and, and everything. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's dry and it's supposed to be 31 degrees and windy tomorrow. So it's a grass fire. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, um, It's kind of unfortunate, but um, this week's weather is looking pretty solid, at least for the first start of the or the first few days of the week. And then I think we're getting into some rain by the weekend. But I'm hoping to get out a few more times in the backyard and have a poke around for some more doubles. And yeah, uh, you know, probably keep messing around a little bit with this 32 millimeter ortho.
0: Yeah, they keep doing that though. They keep putting putting the rain in the forecast. People may think it's really weird that we're kind of looking for rain, but. But I went out and even even going out to the observing sites I'm at like like the it's dust, it's like getting dusty, and um you know it's not good you know we live in a big agricultural area, it's not good for that it's not not good for breathing, you know, like anytime there's a wind, there's like getting to be dust in the air now and and like the the ground out there it's turning into like dust, like you know you walk around it's like walk around in powder eh, um when yeah. you go into the fields now and no, that that's not good. That's not good for anybody. So, speaking of grain, grain inspector Mike, he was uh, he was sketching M fifty one. That was a great sketch of M fifty one that he sent us through his twelve inch from a dark site.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was really good. Um, yeah, man. You know, I have such an appreciation for good sketches like that because I'm just so bad at it. Have <laughs> and, you
0: tried? And I re- a
1: little bit. Like I've uh, not at the eyepiece yet. I've just tried sketching. I, I pull, I've i pulled out my lunar, uh, what is that? The lunar atlas or the, the photographic lunar atlas mm. and uh, have just like, you know, practiced sketching a few craters based on the, the photographs in there. Um, and I'm not very good at that, but, you know, so so I just have a general appreciation for good sketchers, but I'm really impressed with people that can just, do that at the eyepiece in darkness and, you know, come up with a really nice image.
0: Yeah. Well, well Mike, Mike, he's, he's a bit of a Renaissance man. You know, he can, he can do a lot of different things, you know, he can cook and, you know, uh, sketch and do all this kind of different, different stuff, you know, sort of, uh, has a lot of impressive, uh, talents in that. I know he listens to this too. So <laughs> I'm putting that out there. He was, uh, he was talking about a strange observation of like a, a like a little, uh, Steve, or something yeah, like that. yeah. What did you think of that?
1: Well, maybe let's just. Uh, we should probably talk about what Steve is, uh, just in case some listeners are not familiar with that. Steve is an acronym. Don't ask me what it stands for. It's like I think short term something something something, um, but it's S T E V E is the acronym. It's a small it, aura, basically. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, it's like a lot of the images that I've seen of Steve is they're really like really tall kind of skinny pillars of light, which, um, you know, it is Aurora of some kind, but I think there's a lot of unknown aspects about what, you know, how these things uh, originate, why they are, what they are. Um, and, and just a lot of, I I, like, I think it's kind of a recent discovery too. I'm not sure there's been much on this Steve phenomenon prior to like the last,
0: I don't know, three or four years. Yeah. I had a big Um, observation back in like 2011 or something like that, that I, that I wrote up. And uh, and then recently submitted it to I don't know my friend Clark who's going to be on the show next week he was he was looking for some observations of it so I sent it off to him and yeah I was able to see it I remember that it was I think 2011 something like that and I could see it from horizon to horizon and it was just this thin little arc it, and I could put it in in my five inch refractor which has a maximum field of view of three and a half degrees and uh, and it was like well contained inside that, like so, it's very dense. It was pretty bright, and I could actually scan right from like the western horizon to the eastern horizon, and just went right up overhead. It was just, it was wild. Like wrote up because I thought this is something very weird. <laughs> like I've never heard of anything like this before. So then I I sent it off. He's he's writing something up on, on these. So so I, I did get a get a good sort. That was pre Steve. That nobody was talking about these back then, and when. When I kind of put that out there, it kind of fell pretty flat. Like I posted some observing lists and that sort of thing. And people are like, yeah, Aurora happens and stuff like that. I'm like, no, no, this was, this was different. (laughs) (laughs) So,
1: well, a a guy that I work with, he, um, he's a real weather fanatic. Like he, he loves, uh, Hmm. not sure what happened there tired because he's he's chasing aurora and getting amazing photographs um and he uh he got a photograph well he's got many photographs of steve and
0: uh yeah oh you're still there okay yeah we had a little something something glitched out there for a second but yeah keep going i think it probably picked you up okay
1: um anyway he took some photographs and i i don't know if he submitted them to nasa or what but he ended up receiving like this really cool uh certificate from them uh like in this leather like kind of folder thing that you open up and wow. and uh, just like recognizing his contribution to like early information or something like that about steve and uh, anyway pretty cool um and our good friend mike was uh was well he had a pretty good week of observing he went down yeah. to the grasslands and then uh, another one of our provincial parks and he mentioned this observation i think he was was it low on the horizon i want to say it was
0: I, I can't recall i just remember him saying it was it was small and he needed i think he was looking through the telescope or binoculars or something he needed optical aid regardless to to see this little this little bit of it
1: yeah yeah so he, i think it was through his telescope and he said it looked like kind of a streak of light that Sometimes, when you see a meteor go across the sky, it'll leave like a trail for three to five seconds or, or whatever. And he said it was kind of like that, except it just never disappeared. It was just there. Yeah. And he said it was it, like it seemed like it was fairly distant uh, in, in the um, atmosphere. Yeah. And uh, was wondering or, or
0: thinks that it uh, is an observation of Steve. Oh. Yeah, so. it could, could have been. I said it was like uh, Steve's cousin, Sven. <laughs> so, yeah, I've, yeah, I, I, have. I haven't seen that. i like that. That sounds definitely unique in my observational experience. I've seen like ion trails and that sort of thing. Um, one thing I thought it could be is, and I know they're they're doing some launches. They they uh, anyway. There, there's a lot of different space launches that have been going on recently, and sometimes those upper stages, when they burn out in that upper atmosphere, which can be really stable. Like that little bit will stay around for a while. And I think there was a launch that night. So I was kind of thinking maybe, maybe it was the upper stage and it just burned out. Because I remember there was, there was one night back in Nova Scotia where there was a, uh, there was a rocket and it, it just gave out its, uh, like the remainder of its gas. Or, or like once it did whatever it had to do, it jettisoned its gas or its whatever material it was using to, to uh, repel itself. And it was crazy. Like people were like freaking out, right? Like it was so prominent, and they there was like photos all over the from the eastern coast. And uh, but anyway, turned out it was just it was just this rocket. So I was thinking, well, it could just be a small rocket, or it could be maybe it is like a small version of Steve condensed like that. That seems really weird, very strange. Yeah, yeah, very very interesting observation.
1: No matter what.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and uh, had a report from Phil on NGC four five six five, the Needle, a side-on spiral galaxy.
1: Yeah, yeah. He he was um, he was observing a number of galaxies up in that area of the sky, up uh, kind of by Coma Berenices. Yeah, um, and I think he was. I think he was using the Skyhawk, which is a what is that? A four and a half inch reflector. Uh, yeah, F5, I think it's one
0: hundred and thirty millimeter. Yeah, so just over five inches. Oh, okay. Okay.
1: Uh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty, pretty good uh, observation. Um, the needle galaxy is, is a, uh, a great galaxy to look at. You know, it is one that sort of has a unique shape to it. Um, you know, pretty thin, you know, edge on uh, galaxy. It's, it's yeah. Neat. Have you looked at it very much?
0: Uh, pfft, yeah, I've seen it. It um, does, doesn't look like that much through the smaller instrument when I was observing with Mark. When he had his 18 inch out uh when mm-hmm. I, we, had a, we had a pretty good look at it in 18 inch it was uh that that was really nice um when you see those galaxies in in the big scope but yeah they're they're fun to hunt down and in, in the smaller ones too and uh and yeah, and phil was asking me about my I, th- I think i put a bit of a speaking of needles i think I put a bit of a needle into the uh to the caldwell list and and he was wondering what my um what my sentiments were on, on that. I think so. (laughs) So yeah, it's, it's one of those things. So I don't know. Have you ever, have you ever looked at the Caldwell list, Shane? Briefly, many,
1: many years ago. So after I finished my Messier list, which was quite a while ago, I was wondering what my next one should be. And, uh, I thought, well, I've heard of this Caldwell, let's take a look at it. And isn't there some Southern hemisphere stuff in there?
0: Well, yeah, and so, so there, yeah. There's, a few things, there's a few things with the Caldwell list. So, so what, what's sort of my gripe uh, about it? So I, I don't really have any, any problem with anybody coming up with lists, but, but sort of traditionally people don't make up lists and then name them after themselves as much. So even like the Herschel's lists, uh, although they might be referred to as like H-whatever, they were eventually compiled down uh, into the NGC. Right, it, they're not called the Herschels necessarily, although you know they they might just be marked as as H whatever. But it wasn't like you know anyway. And they they you know made a big contribution. And then there's there's the Messiers, which you know as the M's or whatever. But they were you know at least the original discoverers of all those objects, right? Mm-hmm. And and even still, they're all differently cataloged than them by their H or M or whatever name. Um, and then. I guess the challenge becomes that many of the objects therefore end up with a lot of different catalog numbers. So uh, all the Messiers have like like M42 has an NGC number. It might have a, you know all these different catalog numbers. So we already have we're already very very rich in nomenclature for the objects. And then so the challenge becomes when when people start adding in uh, additional catalog numbers, especially for these bright objects. And then it can, can create some confusion over, like, well, what are you observing? Like with the Messiers, we kind of know what M42 is or whatever. But with the Herschels, although they might be referred to as the eight, whatever, typically they are referred to by their C number, IC number, and some. So, so there's that. Um, you know, sort of, it's kind of, uh, I think, introducing some uh, potential confusion and unnecessary challenge. Like, you you could call them that, but then to, to you know because maybe that's kind of fun ton, tongue in cheek or whatever. But then like list them all as C objects and whatever. It just just gets really confusing because then you actually have cedar bland objects and uh, all these different things. And then what? Like I'm looking at them right now. Well, what what are these? Like some of these I, I have no idea what they are. Um, and they're labeled on here. So you might go and observe them and not even know like well what is the NGC object or whatever. I suppose. So there, so there's that. And then again, like a lot of them are far southern objects, and so you can't you can't go and and observe them all from uh, like one location. And yeah, it's kind of neat if you're like sort of somebody who's going to be traveling all all over the place. Like you know, Phil's in the UK. We're here in Saskatchewan. Our our latitude is uh, hardly we're splitting a difference on, Um, and none of us could go and observe all these. Like that's just that's just not going to happen, right? Um, so there's that. And then some of the other ones are just like, holy cow, like some of these are, are pretty faint. Um, let's see. Um, just going through, you know, some of them aren't too bad, but, uh, well, here's one like a super giant elliptical galaxy in coma Berenices, NGC 4889 is like an 11 and a half magnitude galaxy. Like that's pretty faint. Yeah, um
1: yeah especially if it's a large galaxy too like that light will be pretty diffuse then
0: and and even more challenging well and here's one that i've kind of seen and not seen and that's like hubble's variable nebula and oh, yeah. so that's it's variable so like the night we went out to see it yeah i guess we kind of see it but we're using like someone's 20 inch telescope thing and you can hardly see it right um or 18 inch telescope whatever it was and then, uh, let's see, yeah, just like the list goes on. And some of them are showpiece objects, like the Rosette Nebula. And so well, what, what kind of list is this? Like some of these are pretty bright and sort of showpiece objects that aren't in the Messier list, that's cool. But that some of these are really faint or extremely challenging. So I kind of struggle, like the Helix is on here. But then like, uh, you know, d- different things like that, that faint Galaxy. Um, and then some of the stuff is well so far south down in you know wherever it is norma arena and different different things like that like you know like the etacrina nebula is in there well that's cool but i mean gee like you can see that with your naked eye pretty easy from you know from from the back deck you're having a drink on in in hawaii right um you know so so it's kind of weird and then like all the southern object ones are for the most part fairly bright so i guess that that's sort of you know, uh, oh, and then there's like a planetary nebula, like 12th magnitude in chameleon to, to top the list off. So I guess that's my general gripe about it is that you can't observe them all from, from the same site. And then if you're going to go down to the southern hemisphere, um, you know, you're probably going to observe all those and hopefully more, right? I mean, I did. Um, and I don't know. It's, it's just kind of a funny list. It's just, a, it's just, a, it's just an oddball list, right? And I guess, you know, in a way I kind of have a problem just with, um, random lists in the sky. Like, like that'd be cool if it was just like some, somebody's list, you're like, okay, you know, and then this person went down to this, you know, the Southern hemisphere and made some observations because that was their own little project. That's cool. But, uh, but as far as like a list to put out and that's kind of what happened is it gets out and then people kind of really latch onto it. And, uh, you know, it, it is just like, you know, I could do that list, but I'm only going to get two thirds of it. And then years later, maybe I can get the last few objects on there I, I didn't get, but you'd have to take, you know, you'd also have to take a telescope with you. And, you know, it's kind of unfortunate if a third of the objects are below the horizon from here, and then you go to the Southern Hemisphere, well, it'd be great if you could get them all with binoculars or a small telescope like our refractors. Maybe you can, but you'd have to like, I mean, well, I observed top of, uh, volcano with the big telescopes, but you know, you'd have to get to a really awesome spot um to see like that planetary nebula in chameleon. And uh any anyway, that that's like really kind of a bit of a strange thing. Like if you're going to the southern hemisphere and there's so many things to see um to end up in in chameleon looking at a 12th men planetary. Well that might be any planetary, but you know maybe if you're a planetary nebula fan, that'd be cool. Anyway, so so that's kind of my my thing with the Caldwell list. Like I got I got it. Same with you is like when I finished the Messier's, which I did before I joined the RASC. And then I, I looked at that list, started working. I'm like, well, wh- hang on a second. You know, and the, the, the objects just aren't what I, would, what I would, you know, think they should be. So what I think a good list would be is something like what uh, uh, Alan Dyer here in Canada made up, which is the, uh, it's called the finest NGC list. And it contains like a few IC objects. And it's a well thought out list. You can see all the stuff from uh, the northern hemisphere, so all from more or less the same observing site. Um, my only complaint, you know, and I have a lot of complaints about about lists, and people should know that I I curate a, or I have curated observing lists, and I'm still involved in the creation of certificate observing lists for the RASC. So I have a little bit of background in this. Uh, my only complaint about the finest NGC one is that there's there's a lot of galaxies in there. You know that's the way it is. Once you, once you kind of get off the mainstay, um, and as such, I've kind of created some of my own lists. Uh, I have a wide field wonders list, which you can see all the objects from from here in Canada, and uh, and some of them are kind of challenging too. But but at least you could see them all from from a really dark location with uh, with small wide field instruments, and that that's sort of that's sort of the theme of my little list. It's not a certificate list at all. It's just that, uh, and it's pretty short, like thirty one objects. Or something like that. You can see them all more or less from uh, the same very very dark site. It's just really meant to encourage people to take their small equipment and go to dark sites and have interesting things to look at when they're at those dark sites. And I, I think it's been successful in that. I hear from people that that have done just that. Basically, a lot of us experienced observers have small uh, refractors like 60 millimeter scopes, and we like to go to dark sites. And this is this is a list that's designed for people using. 60 millimeter two and a half inch telescopes to like maybe up to six inch eight inch telescopes from from very dark site. Um but but that list from from Patrick Moore is, you know that's confusing as well because he didn't call it like the Patrick Moore list, I guess because he didn't want the M number because there was already Messier. So he named it after like his mother's maiden name or something like that, if I'm recalling correctly. So then that just just add like who is this Caldwell person? <laughs> just like adds in this extra level of confusion. Not that I I don't appreciate much of what Patrick Moore did, but at the same time, it's like you know, yeah, I guess maybe, maybe I think it's fair to say a bit of an eccentric there, and this this list maybe is a bit of a play on that. But but like Phil in the UK and other people in different places, like they can't even do the whole list from the UK, and that's really strange. I think like why not just create a list that people could have actually done from the UK? And I do like some of the objects in it, but a lot of them, yeah, I don't know, they're they're just difficult objects to to see you know,
1: but anyway, yeah. Yeah. There's definitely some challenging ones in there. And, and some of the more showpiece objects are on other lists like the finest NGC. Um, it's, it is a unique list. And, and, uh, I remember when I said, or, or when I decided not to use the list, it was because of the Southern hemisphere connection. Mm. I just don't have access to that. And my plan was that, you know, when I go to the Southern hemisphere, uh, for an observing trip, um, you know, I will attempt to see these objects. And if I can knock those ones off, then I'll, you know, maybe finish up the the Northern stuff at some point. And, you know, to be honest, going through this list, I've seen a a number of this, uh, of the uh, Northern hemisphere stuff, although there still are some challenging ones on there, like the bubble nebula up in
0: Cassiopeia um, and a few others. Yeah. I've seen that one. That's, that's not, that's actually not too difficult to see. Um, But again, like, I don't know, like, if it's supposed to be like the next thing from the Messier list, it's a weird list. Like, cause it's not really the best and brightest visible, like, you know, cause if it's playing on the fact that it's supposed to be the next thing from the Messier, then shouldn't the objects be visible from the area Messier was observing from? And they're not right. Um, so that would be a, a bit of a, bit of a challenge, um, for me to, to kind of think that was a good list then because, um, it, it's sort of a, a list that kind of sits on its own. And then if you are going to the Southern Hemisphere, you know, when I started, when I went down and I, I didn't get to the Southern Hemisphere, but I had access to other Southern skies than I can see from here. Um, those weren't the objects I was going to look at. I went to different things because I think there's, there's other better things to spend my nights, my few nights at under the stars to, uh, to look at from down there. So uh, again, even when I had the opportunity, I didn't go after them. So yeah. that. that kind of is where I stand on it. <laughs> well, now we know how you re- really feel about the cult <laughs> list. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, sort of in full disclosure, I'm biased because, you know, I'm uh, a contributing editor and author of the uh, RASC Observer's Handbook, and I, I've helped curate and work with the observers who, who create and, and publish lists in there, of which I'm, I'm somebody who has a list published. And uh, uh, Alan Whitman has a great Southern Hemisphere list. And I think some of these objects are on there. But Alan Whitman is, uh, I mean, ar- arguably maybe he would be at least comparable to to Patrick Moore. I would say in the very least. I don't know. Haven't talked to Alan about that, but I've certainly talked to Alan a lot. And uh, he's a phenomenal observer and and has spent time in the Southern Hemisphere and uh, with a variety of different instruments. And uh, I think that's the list to to work through. If one gets one gets to the Southern, if you want to, and the book. It, you know, we we put it out every year. I think it's around twenty five or thirty bucks or something. Has all kinds of great information in there, and then it has all these these lists towards the back that, uh, that you can you can work through. And there, I don't think there's a certificate for for his list or anything. And I think you can probably find it free on the internet. It's not something that uh, that any of us get paid to do. So this information is kind of freely available. Um, so if somebody does want a Southern Hemisphere list, look up uh, Alan Whitman's Southern. I don't know. I have it here. I'll look it up here at the break or something, but anyway, I could go on. We should move ahead. <laughs> all right. Good stuff. Uh, Suburban Mark sent us an incredible email about his five inch Mac on an AZ GTI. And I spent a long time reading his email. Like it was. So first of all, thanks to everybody who sends us emails because, um, this was sort of one of the great. This is, I think, the greatest unexpected thing about doing this podcast is that we are just amateur astronomers, so like doing our own observing, have our own opinions clearly, and um, we do enjoy hearing from other people and and your opinions and uh, and what you're observing and what you like to observe, maybe the list that you you like to observe and the equipment that you like to use, and I'm I'm blown away at the emails that people take the time to send us and they. They really sit down and put their thought uh, into their emails um, when they compose them. And uh, and yeah, I mean, they're they're, they're on the hung side, but man, it's really cool. Like you really get a good feeling. And uh, Mark had sent us this, this email about, uh, I think he was kind of getting back into astronomy, went through a variety of different instruments and then kind of settled on. I'm going to read it because uh, we just won't have time, but he settled on this five-inch Mac on an AZ-GTI which I think is a great combination for somebody who's for sure. uh, getting going. So my friend Randall, who's going to be on next week, he's got that Mac. I don't know that he bought the AZ-GTI with it, but, but he's got that exact Mac, I think, or, or a similar proximity to it. And I think you've had one of those in the past. I think those little five-inch Macs are awesome because they're high quality, they're portable. Um, they don't have as wide a field of view, but other than that, they're great instruments, and, and the AZ-GTI is a great little mount, lightweight, tracks, portable, awesome. Um, and then he, he's been making his way through the messy object, which I think is, is a great way for people to keep going, and he, um, he talked, the one thing that really spoke to me and I was going to focus on is, he talked about, and I'm quoting him, being irrationally intimidated about going out to dark sites, I may be paraphrasing a bit. Um, so I kind of wanted to quickly walk people through what, what I do about that, because it's actually not irrational to be going out somewhere that's dark at night um, alone. That, that's something that people should be aware of, that uh, has some potential risk to it. I think just inherently as, as, as primates, we, we are programmed uh, against doing. So uh, will you indulge me for a moment, Shane?
1: <laughs> I will. Cause I, I share this uh, same intimidation I, in the past. And even, even now, like if I'm going to go out by myself, it just, it's not as comfortable as
0: going with, uh, you know, another buddy or something like that, but carry on, Chris carry. On. So I learned this from, from my friend, Tim and, and cause we would talk about this. And uh, so my friend, Tim, um, he's, he's a motor motorcycle mechanic. And if you saw him and you didn't know he's a motorcycle mechanic, you might say, I bet you that guy's a motorcycle mechanic. So maybe there's a little bit of a stereotype there but uh, uh i'm i'm going to just say that because I, I don't think i'm i'm knocking him by saying that at all i mean he is a motorcycle mechanic um but you know he's you know he's he's uh kind of looks like a bit of a tough guy he's a super nice guy but kind of looks maybe a little bit tough right and and i remember him talking about this and whatever he talks about maybe being a little bit uh, intimidated by something, I'm always like, okay, then it's totally normal for anybody to be intimidated. Like once Tim kind of says that, that that's where the level is, then you're like, okay, then that's something everybody should be concerned about. (laughs) If he's not worried, then okay, maybe I should still be worried. But if he's worried, then probably everybody should be worried about whatever. So what, what he said to do is, and this makes a lot of sense is, and this is what I did recently. So recently, um, I wanted to move sites because somebody had built uh, a house somewhat near where I was observing. Now, you might think, first of all, I'm going to say that the person lit it up and there's all these lights and blah, 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 and there's not. This person moved to the country, and unlike a lot of people who moved to the country, he didn't put, and I know it's a he because I've, I've seen him, um, he didn't put lights all over his property, and so that's good. But I did notice that when I went out and was observing near the place that his lights would come on, I could tell maybe I was creating some concern. I just don't want to do that to somebody. Um, I just, you know, thought, I'll just move down, down the road, like a mile. So I wanted to, to go and find a nearby site. And so I was pretty comfortable at that site, and, oh, and the other thing is, this guy owned a really huge dog, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, if that dog gets out, I'm going to have a problem." <laughs> right Anyway. I want to be, be at least another mile or two away. So, anyway, so what I did is I went on Google Maps and I also used the Dark Sky Finder to, to kind of create um, a bit of a search grid. So, I kind of had a few spots I kind of picked on that grid, but I try to keep a, a bit of an open mind. And so I picked a few roads just to drive down, just to kind of see what was there. Now, the, there's a few things to keep in mind when you're finding a site. One is that it, it does need to be dark. So, you use the Dark Sky Finder to, um, to find that, that location. And then um, you need to f- take a good look at Google Maps. And you got to be careful. So the other thing I have is um, good off-road vehicle. So if you're doing this and you don't have that, you need to take that into account. So in one of the spots, I knew it was going to be really rough in one spot, um, but the vehicles that, that I have access to are, are not going to have any kind of, kind of trouble with that. And I picked them <laughs> for doing this. Um, so anyway, So I go out and I do a daytime survey. And so maybe I've picked five or six different sites and I go out, I'm probably going to eliminate half of them right off the top. So don't just pick one site and put all your eggs in one basket because that's probably not going to work. So you want to pick at least several sites and you go out and they all should be relatively close. Like all these sites were within maybe like five or six minutes of each other, but they were all like a little bit different for one reason or another. So I found... Uh, just driving on this one road, which I didn't even pick a side out at all, it's actually got a really great spot or two to pull off. And now you got to keep in mind that these are um, like farm fields that we're driving through here, and that you can't go on to um, a farm field. Okay, um, so there's that. But you can if there's if there's roads, you can be be on or adjacent to those roads if if there's appropriate spots. And I found that this 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 road had a really great pull-off and that like a parking lot and uh and and basically that's what it's used for now right now it's being used because they're out there planting and seeding and everything but uh but once the uh once that's in the ground i would be able to go and park there it's basically just a parking lot in the middle of uh right on the side of a road that you can pull off on so it's it's off the road plenty of room it's actually a parking lot you don't want to be driving over anybody's crops or anything remotely like that that is just Terrible thing to do. So there's that. And then uh so I picked out that spot. I picked out another spot, which I thought would be even better. And it was just on a road that was between um two main roads, but there's nothing on the road. And I thought there's no houses, there's basically no reason for anybody to be on that road. I could probably just set right up on that road and I'd be okay. Um, that's always a little bit of a risk, but whatever. Um, I've done that before and hasn't been a problem. I've run into a you know, a few things where I had to pack up and move, but in 20 years, I had to do that maybe once or twice, so that's not a big deal. And then I picked another spot that was really close, and it's actually at a crossroads of similar uh, roads where the roads actually don't come from or really go to anything. They're just um, like really old red roads, basically that that aren't maintained anymore. And like I said, I've I've got a vehicle that that's really like geared for off road, so. Um, then what I did is I went back at night and I found out that the best spot that I thought would be the best spot there was there was a farm about I don't know a mile or two from it, and it had a giant spotlight pointed right at that spot. <laughs> I don't know why. maybe people do go out that there at night and we're doing something. I don't know, so I'm like, well, I'm not using the site uh, but uh but two of the other spots that i that I checked out uh worked out pretty good and and then what you can do. Is quote a bit during the day, and so uh, you can go out during the day and just kind of hang out there for a bit and see what it's like, see what the traffic is like, um just kind of get get used to the lay of the land and then start going out there like in early evening when it's still light and just kind of kind of make it a bit homey, you know you can maybe put, put a plant there or something no I don't know um you know you, you just kind of make it like a like a place that you go to like I say. Sort of half joking, like my backyard, right? Because I kind of think of it, it is really like my backyard. It's, it's just 10 kilometers behind my house, but it's about a magnitude six sky once you get that far out of the city. So, uh, and there's lots of room around there. So then I was going out, I went out at night a couple of times, and I think I saw like the whole time I was out there, I saw one other vehicle, and they're still working the fields out there. And, um, so there's some dust in that around. So I can't quite start using. Uh, any of those spots. Yeah. But then kind of once, uh, once the farming quiets down out there and I mean, a there's lights and B, you know, having worked in the grain business, I like, like, I don't even want to delay somebody who's trying to drive somewhere, get home at night or do whatever. Like, I don't want to be out there messing around in the fields when people are trying to do their job, you know, and these, these people work hard, you know, thankfully raise lots of good, but anyway. Um, yeah. So then that's kind of how I do it.
1: Sort of been a- yeah. I think that's really good advice. Um, you know, familiarity with the site is important. Um, and I, I do like sites where you can get off the road. Um, I know we've done some, you know, just pull off on a dirt road <laughs> and observe. And, uh, those ones I, I don't enjoy as much because of the, uh, uh, just if somebody passes by the dust and uh, all that stuff is kind of annoying, but yeah, you know, it's, it's fun to scout for new locations and, uh, I'm excited for this one that you found uh, not too far from me actually, to see what it looks like.
0: Yeah, and why that road isn't used? And it it just depends how much rain we get. But there's we have what are called these old potholes here, and what they are they're, they're interesting is it's when the glaciers the there was a I think it's called the Laurentian Glacier anyway when it receded here around eight or ten thousand years ago, um, it left these giant hunks of ice that were buried in in the plain. And they became like almost like mini wetlands. And when they put that road through, like who knows when they put that road in like a hundred years ago or something, um, it must've been another year like this because you would never have put it through there otherwise. And even now you can kind of see where the pothole is and the road like goes right through the middle of the pothole. So if you look on the satellite image, you actually see that it's got a. it's, it's usually like a bit of a wetland there. So like I said, with the vehicle that I have, it's, it's going to go through anything. It's not going to be a problem. Um, so I kind of thought, well, that, that would be a good spot. And it's a place that people traditionally aren't going to drive through because, you know, a lot of the time that, that, especially for anything that isn't, um, an off-roader, um, you're just, you might not get through, right? Like you're going to be backing up and turning around. And there's actually a spot there to back up and turn around and guess what? That's a great spot to set up. (laughs) So, Mm. so you're kind of, on this side road that doesn't get used and there's a spot to pull off and set up. So that's, that's a good spot. There we go. We got a really great set of images. We probably won't get through all of our stuff here today, unfortunately, but we got a great set of images from Eric and his 80s hmm. telescope.
1: Yeah, his suitcase daub that he made. Um, very cool design. Um, and an interesting backstory, how he designed this to like essentially go in a backpack uh, let the, like the lower tube assembly and the rocker box would be in the backpack. Uh, the truss tubes would be kind of on the outside of the pack. And then he could haul all of this gear into the back country for some ultra dark sky observing. And it's such a cool little design. And, and it was neat to hear about some of his kind of trials and tribulations, uh, as, you know, as he built it and some of the modifications that he made. Um, yeah. but you know, the, the ingenuity of, um, uh astronomers and their do-it-yourself projects uh, never cease to astound me <laughs> and um you know that's also one of the things i like to do in this hobby is just see what uh other projects people are working on and some of them appeal to me and then i'll just copy them uh you know a few weeks ago I, chris i sent you a photograph and i tweeted it out but i made an eyepiece holder for my uh, mm. hogan slash manfrotto tripod you know and it's yeah, very seen- simplistic yeah 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 and that's not my idea i just saw it online and said hey that's pretty easy to do and you know without an eyepiece tray it's kind of annoying sometimes because you have nowhere to to put your extra eyepieces but you know cutting a few holes in a piece of wood from my garage and then mounting it onto the tripod leg was really easy and now i have some convenience and it was kind of a fun little build so i really appreciate projects like what eric did and uh you know, they're like, I, I will probably say that the uh, suitcase daub that he made, I will not make because I just don't have the, like the daub mirror or anything like that, but uh, I'm still fascinated by it.
0: I will, if you can do what Eric did, I will buy you that mirror. <laughs> Cause that isn't <laughs> I just really oh, want to look through it that I got to say this. And I really hope that Eric isn't, isn't, isn't insulted by my, my description, but the first thing I thought of when, when I saw the telescope, well, first I thought it was awesome. And then when I looked at the, the paint job and what's, it just really, I, I think it's really neat the way people paint up their telescopes. I just love that is, uh, I I was a fan of the a team as a small child. And if people are familiar with the paint scheme of the a team black van, this, this telescope reminds me of that. (laughs) I mean, like somehow he is, he has encompassed that. Uh, don't know if that's intentional or not, but, uh, uh yeah, I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, well done.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh yeah.
0: I, it would be awesome to actually see that thing live
1: and just check it out, you know, how how it all works together.
0: Yeah. Um, well, we did have some emails from from uh Jim. And uh I think maybe we'll and we we do have some other emails. Well, I think we're gonna have to uh have to just do those next week. Um, you know, really appreciate uh uh, Eric, for sending us all those and, uh, you know, really, really enjoyed uh, seeing seeing the photos of it. So I think we're starting to get towards the, the end of our time here today, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, yeah, thanks. You mentioned it right at the start. Thank you to everybody that sent us um, emails recently. Uh, you know, we got a, we definitely received an uptick in the amount of email traffic. We've been reading them and enjoying them. And uh, what we'll do is, you know, the we'll, we won't lose track of them. We'll, we'll probably talk about them on a future episode. It's just, uh, yeah, we're at time.
0: Yeah. And I hope people don't mind if we kind of paraphrase a bit, like oftentimes people will send us these, these beautifully well-written long emails, but then like, uh, uh, like with marks, there was, there was kind of like that one thing that really kind of stuck with me about, about observing sites. And I think that is important to cover. Um, yeah. So I really, really appreciate that. Usually there's, there's something in each of those emails that, uh, that there wasn't something that maybe we, we thought of including in the podcast and i think that uh people would enjoy hearing and then sometimes um there's some pretty big sections I think like with jim's um we want to we want to read a, a good bit of that because it actually describes some of his observing processes and i think uh, people can learn learn from from his uh just just the way that he, he does astronomy so we'll we'll get into that next yeah yeah that sounds good all right shane we have some new Patreon supporters.
1: Yeah, we do. So uh, a big thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. And I uh, just want to give a shout out to a couple of new supporters, uh, Dorian and Christian. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, just want to say thank you.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. We have some, some, I think we have some renewals coming up for our, like we do have to pay. There are costs to doing the podcast. So we do really appreciate it. Um, they're not huge costs, but kind of in order for us to, to do this long term it's hard to fund it in perpetuity out of our, out of our pockets. Um, and so we, we do really uh, appreciate that. Um, and then there, there's some other stuff that over the next year or so, and I know that uh, uh, we have had some, some additional audio trouble that we're working through. So helps helps to create a bit of a, a buffer there for, uh, for expenditures. So we do really appreciate that. So other than that, Shane, anything further to add? No, that's all, my friend. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.